Here we are, August the 3rd, 2014, lecture discussion number 163 on the book of Romans. And as I said just a few seconds ago, when it didn't record, <laughs> we have to do this stop and pause. It's kind of a thing I have to do at uh, Cliffside, uh, and more than, um, well, a lot more than I thought it was necessary, but we got to look back on how we arrived to where we are now, where we're at, and it's never easy. First, it requires that we know where we're at, which that in itself is a challenge, and then uh, that's uh, it's always problematic. And second, we need to know where we were, which we, we don't have that very well worked out either. That's mysterious. And usually we concede to being helplessly lost and continue to wander around in circles after I review, all the while assuming that uh, as the fearless leader that I have a plan, irrespective of the contrary evidence. Now, as the fearless leader, naturally I'm offended by the muttering of the platoon, being that I'm hypersensitive, you know, I'm deeply wounded. It isn't unusual for you guys to accuse me, and the Internet as well, to accuse me that I am um, I'm lost. I get it all the time. I have no idea where you're going. You don't know where you're going. And I know that's shocking that people would write that and say that to me, but they do. <laughs> And so I do this every now and then, kind of to prove that uh, it's possible to retrace my steps. I really do know where I am, and I have halfway an idea where we're going. And so that's what I'm doing today a little bit. Remembers Roman, remember Romans 9. Sounds like a, like remember the main or something. Remember Romans 9, where the majority view of the theological elites, we covered this a few months ago, the majority view of the theological elites of, on Romans 9 is that is such they, that they insist that the context is individual salvation. So when you read Romans 9, most of the, overwhelmingly, most of the people who have written commentaries on that passage will tell you that the subject, the context, is individual salvation. And then after that conclusion, then they careen headlong into the ditch almost immediately because they're wrong. And you can't help but go into the ditch when you start that way. And ultimately, they conclude with that position to begin from that God is therefore evil. Now, I sped through that process uh, significantly, but it's accurate. It's an accurate depiction of how Romans 9 is usually taught. Sadly so. Unnecessarily so, but it is how, they, how it is. And I, I know the numbers are against me. I, I see it all the time. And I'm reminded of it all the time. And somewhere back months ago, as I said, who remembers, I refuted this position easily. I, I'll tell you, does it, sounds like, it sounds like I'm bragging. I'm not. It's a decisive re- refutation. It's easy to refute that position that Romans 9 is about individual salvation, and therefore God is evil. That's, that's simple to tear that to pieces. It's wrong-headed interpreting. It's wrong, period. So Romans 9 does not teach that. Romans 9 is not about individual salvation. It's a three-part argument. And the context is the Messiahship, or the rejection of the Messiahship, Of Jesus Christ. So the rejection, Christ has come to the nation of Israel. This is God himself. God of Israel himself has come to his nation of Israel. It is the Matthew 12 scenario discussed at Romans 9. Matthew 12 is exactly where it is recorded in the Bible. It's called the unpardonable sin. And people tell me all the time, I know someone that has committed the unpardonable sin. No, you don't. You cannot commit the unpardonable sin individually. It is not an individual issue. It is a national sin. And so what it requires is that God himself be in front of you and you're a nation. And that you reject his Messiahship on the basis that he is Satan and not God. That is the unpardonable sin. 
That is not something an individual can do. Nor has an individual done it. And that ultimately is where Romans 9 is a three-part argument. And the, and the context is the rejection of the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. And Romans 9 is then, then is an extraordinary, when you look at it and understand what it's about, it's an extraordinary, I'll tell you that it's magical, um, it's just fantastic way of utilizing three amazing symbols. There's your context, now I have three symbols. I have the symbol of Jacob and Esau. I have the symbol that is the Pharaoh. Pharaoh, if you prefer, and I have the potter, which is clearly God, and the clay. Now, is the clay an individual or is it a nation? Well, the context is the rejection of the Messiahship of Christ, which is a national event. So, therefore, the clay, very likely in context, is the nation of Israel or other nations as well. So... <coughs> And the whole point of it is to make those incredible symbols. And we're battling our way through right now, Jacob and the Esau, Jacob and Esau symbol. We're almost done with that. And we'll move on to the Pharaoh and then the potter and the clay. It takes a long time. It's not easy. But the whole point of Romans 9 is to make it clearly obvious that God has not abandoned his nation of Israel, who he calls his adulterous wife, nor has he replaced her. This is not, and when I say her, I really, that's very difficult because I really understand that when I say that God is using the symbol of an adulterous wife to explain his relationship with Israel, people just assume immediately that it's not a symbol, that, that she, that the nation of Israel is an adulterous wife. No. There's a symbol the wife of YHVH, if you will, the ineffable name. Some will say WH, if you will. It's, it's L-O-R-D, all in capital. That is a symbol. Just as the bride, the virgin bride is a symbol. God is explaining what's going on with the nation of Israel and using the symbol of an adulterous wife. And he is explaining what is going to happen to the church by using a symbol that is a virgin bride. So every time you find virgin bride in the New Testament especially, that is applicable to the church. Because the church is being explained with this symbol. Is the church literally a bride? No. The symbol of the church is the virgin bride. Is Israel literally an adulterous wife? No. The symbol of, of Israel is an adulterous wife. I've had people say to me all the time, well, God is committing adultery because he has married Israel. The symbol is the marriage. There is a, and he's put it, marriage is, is a God ordinance, but it's a human condition. Does that make sense? That's difficult for people. And so when I talk, I've got that worked out, and I know that many people do not. But I, I do, and so I know what I'm saying, and, and if it's confusing to you, uh, just stick with me. But that's what's going on in, in, in uh, Romans 9. And many people wish that God had, in fact, replaced and rejected Israel as a nation, as his people. He has not, and they're very mad about that. They want it to be so, because why? They want to be the entity that replaces them. And so that's called replacement theology. And the hatred for Israel, as you know, is a consistent condition of the world. It has been for thousands of years. Anyway, both Romans 9 and last week I brought up John 2, 24 through 25, because those fit together. They're remarkable how they're both um, assigned to Subjects that, that ha, they have nothing to do with, and they're related to each other. To, so just those two passages for today, they are not about individual salvation. So if you read John 2, 24 through 25, and you conclude it's about individual salvation, you will be in the ditch with the rest of them. And if you read Romans 9 and conclude it is about individual salvation, well, you got lots of company, but you're still in the ditch.
And remember, to begin interpreting passages, Bill the Cow and I spent some time together looking at a busted up house he's working on the other day. And, and just re- we talked about this at length. Remember, when you're reading the Bible, if you end up in a conclusion that God is capricious or arbitrary or evil, a liar or the author of sin, then you're horribly wrong. So that's your position. Cast it out. God is always good. He's always just. He's always holy. Can't do anything but be that. Don't tell me that uh, that that means he's not omnipotent. That's silly reasoning and I don't have time for it today. I know that it seems simple, but I just said God is always good, always just, always holy. But ever so many choose option two. They choose that God is evil, he's a liar, he's arbitrary, capricious, he's the author of sin. And they do it often and always, and they have large churches and lots of influence. And how they can read God's word and get to that position, I don't know. But I know they do it, and they love doing it. I call it the running into the burning barn theology school. They love the view. You can't beat them away from it. They're going to go down with it no matter what, and... And I, nothing I can do to stop them, I know. And by the way, this is, uh, uh, when Mr. Dr. Fruchtenbaum was here, he told me, don't go talking to the Jewish people. You're not intelligent or wise enough. You leave that to the experts. That's pretty much what he told me. And he didn't mean it in a, in a um, condescending way. Uh, what he was saying is, you don't understand, as a Gentile, you don't understand how the Jews think. And you'll just cause problems. Send them to me. And so I took that as good advice and began to study how Jews think. Since they wrote the Bible, I wanted to know. I thought it would be helpful. And I've spent a lot of time trying to understand the intellectual processes of the Jewish people. Because I think it's valuable to know that. I do know why Jews don't believe Jesus is God. Uh, They'll tell you. They don't believe he's God at all. They don't believe that he's fulfilled any messianic uh, prophecies. Um, They believe he was a mortal man who died. They don't believe he resurrected. Where would they get such ideas? That he's not God, he was just a mortal man and he died and went into corruption. Where would they get that? They get that from the church, the Christian church. We do such a poor job of explaining who Christ is that they don't, they have a completely contaminated, not just polluted, it's perverted. And they got it from us. And Romans 9 is a, a perfect example of how they get positions like that. So that's why Fruchtenbaum, Dr. Fruchtenbaum was telling me, he assumed that I was an idiot like everybody else that he'd come across. And, the time, I would wish he would have thought differently, but I understand it perfectly. Okay, so uh, we went to the symbols that are Jacob and Esau, where we ended up with the relationship of Esau at Genesis 33.4, and God at Luke 15.20. We found out that Esau at 33.4 is identical to the position that God is in at Luke 15.20. In other words, Esau is a perfect type of Christ. Perfect. Word for word, type of Christ. And so when you read Romans 9, especially 9.13, you need to know, you can't ignore the fact that Esau at 33.4 of Genesis and Christ at 15.20 of the prodigal son, and that's not the right term, it's the two sons, it's the parable of the two sons. Christ at Luke 15.20 are identical. So Esau, whatever your opinion of Esau, you need to know that he is one of the most extraordinary types of Christ in all of the Bible. Certainly all of the Old Testament. It's it's absolutely astonishing when you get a hold of that. So any position that you have, now you're going to read, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Now you've got to conflate that or you have to make it consistent with this fantastic Reproduction of Christ that is in 33.4 of Genesis. No one knows that, I'm afraid, and that's why they make so many mistakes of Romans 9. And after we got that far, we uh, 
we went subsequently to Genesis 32, uh, 22 through 32, and that is where Jacob wrestles with the angel of God, which is Christ himself, and he's wrestling. He wants a blessing. He said, bless me. What is the blessing? It's pretty obvious. What does the name of Christ mean? Yeshua. What does it mean? It means salvation. So he's saying to salvation, give me what? What does he have? What does Christ have to give? Salvation. He's not going to give him 20 bucks. I'm going to give him goats and sheeps and chickens. Jacob was wrestling Mr. Salvation for what Mr. Salvation has. Salvation. Okay, so far so good. And now after leaving Jacob and Esau, uh, and I've left off tremendous amounts of critical information, and if you're listening to this lecture on the Internet or you're here today and you haven't heard the previous dozen or so, you've got to go back and pick up all those pieces and accumulate them. It'll make sense, but I can't do it today. Uh, we've got to move along. But And so moving along, Jacob is confronted, if not obstructed, by Jesus God, Acts 2.32. It's very important to know that. Uh, the, you'll see the New King James does it really well. It, it puts... It puts it just like that. Some of them have a hyphen in between. Maybe I'm wrong about the New King James. Some have a hyphen in there. But the word, can you see that? Am I out of the way? Um, The word in Acts 2.32, Jesus God. There's no comma. There's no hyphen. There's no space. If your Bible has any of those, it's leading you astray. It's one word. So Jacob is confronted, if not obstructed, by Jesus God at Genesis 32. And they're wrestling. And so we started to say, listen, where else does Jesus God come and obstruct or intervene or... or um, I lost my words, so I need medicine. Or hold on to put himself as an obstacle before. Where else does he do that? And, and so immediately we come to Moses, who was also confronted by Christ, and we have Joshua, who's confronted by Christ. So I have, I have Jacob, who is actually Israel, by the way. If anybody is a type of Israel, or is the type of Israel, it'll be Jacob. Now remember, Jacob means, means literally, struggles with Christ, struggles with God. The nation of Israel, if there's ever been a nation on the earth that struggles with God, it is the nation of Israel. They don't even know that Jesus is God. Don't believe it. So I have Jacob, I have Moses, and I have Joshua. All three of those men have as a characteristic of their life this confrontation with Jesus Christ. So we went about comparing Jacob to Moses to Joshua, not necessarily in that order. Now, Jacob ended up with a limp. That's very important to know. I have one today. My leg is killing me. I did not win a limbo contest like some other people might have. I did it by working. No trophy for me. And here we are in an age of trophies. I should get one. Jacob ended up with a limp. Moses is threatened with imminent death over the failure to circumcise his sons. And Joshua has the issue of Jericho, which ultimately involves the accursed thing. That becomes important to us. And obviously, as I said, Jacob's name is changed to Israel. So he's certainly a type of the nation of Israel, uh, a symbol of Israel, if not the symbol of Israel in the whole Bible And if anywhere there is a stumbling block for the nation of Israel, it is Jesus God or Christ Jesus or God, the second person of the triune Godhead. By the way, the Jews do not believe there is any triunity. They do not see the difference between a triad and a triune description of God. So we embarked on why it was that Jacob limps. I mean, and it's a leg. Why not a heel? 
Why not? See, if it was a heel, we would go immediately, wouldn't we? Oh, back to Genesis 3.15. That's another thing the Jews don't recognize. They do not think that God would become a man. They, they have a misunderstanding of Deuteronomy. I'm sorry, Numbers. Um, 22, I can't come up with it off the top of my head. I'll look, at, look it up and bring it back. But there's something that says, am I a man? And the implication is, is no. And that's God speaking through Balaam. Am, am, am I a man? Well, what he's saying is men are weak and can't be counted on. Um, he's not trying to say that he did not become human in order to sacrifice for the sins of mankind. It's, but that, they, they're stuck on that. Again, it's because the church never teaches it right either. And we get into uh, the word of Alma, whether or not that means young woman or virgin, and we get into a situation that you heard me when I did Psalm 22, it's not pierced, my hands and feet, it's like a lion, if you were not here for that, go back and look that up, so that's where all the conflict goes, and and the church has done such an awful job, it's a miracle, tells you that salvation is a miracle, we're horrible at it, at explaining it, much less. So that's evidence that it's supernatural and not us. So uh, anyway, we, why is it that Jacob limps? Why did Moses have, was he faced with an imminent death? And why Joshua was stopped just before the attack on the king of Jericho and with his mighty walls, I'm sorry, with his great walls, his mighty men, and his accursed thing? So we have those three things that we've got to put together and figure it all out. Uh, what does this prove? Uh, about the nation of Israel. How does it fit with Romans 9? And then people ask me all the time, what does it, how does it apply to me? And that's my favorite trick question. Because most of the time it's not about us, is it? That we're so self-focused. There's the old joke and I'm now learning because I'm trying to play the trumpet. I'm learning about all kinds of odd things and with the joke among the trumpet players is that the lead singer comes to the band and says, uh, I want to sing it in the key of F. And so the band director turns to the band and says, okay, the lead singer wants to sing it in the key of F, so we're going to start in F. And then after six or seven measures, we're going to change time signatures from 4-4 four, four to 3-4. And then after six or seven more measures, we're going to go to uh, E-flat. And then after another 10 measures, we're going to go to 12.8. And then we're going to slow all the way down to some kind of halftime feel. And we're going to end uh, mezzo forte on, on the second beat immediately. And that's how we're going to do it. And the lead singer said, I can't do that. What are you talking about? And the band director said, well, that's how you did it yesterday. So why can't we repeat it? And the joke is... Uh, the, you put a lead singer in a box where there's a mirror in front of them, a mirror at top, a mirror at the side, a mirror on the other side, a mirror in back, and a mirror on the floor. So all they see is themselves. You give them one monitor, and the only thing that's in that monitor is themselves. And now you've got the perfect uh, sound system. Well, that's human beings. That's us. We read the Bible, and we think every passage is about us. And hardly any are. He doesn't want you to think about you, does he? You say it to your kids. It's the 13-year-old girl syndrome. You can have a 13-year-old girl a half a mile away and two other 13-year-old girls over here that she can't even see. But she, she even smells them. She assumes they're talking about her, right? Okay, well, that's humanity. That's what we do. It's not how the Bible is written. You're running around the Bible looking for you. You're making a mistake. It's not how he thinks. Now, you're in there. We're in there. But understand where and why and how. All right, moving forward. Well, maybe moving at least. We'll see if it's forward yet. Where we are going kind of remains in question here today. As an aside, I noticed on National Public Radio, they uh, they recently broadcast, they admitted this. They said that wave-particle dualism and the observer effect cannot be explained by evolutionary paradigm. 
can't do it. They're right. In other words, quantum mechanics, quantum physics has proven that all physical manner, you remember our interferometry, remember all that stuff, double slit, photons that are particles, but they, they have a wave particle duality. Quantum physics has proven that all physical matter, that chair, me, light, you, everything, trees, whatever, all physical matter has a dualistic nature to it. It's particle and wave, all of it. And whether it's manifested as a particle or a wave is dependent upon its subjection to observation. The National Public Radio is saying this. That's really kind of cool. And they're saying there's no possibility that evolution can explain this condition in the physical reality. And all physical reality complies to wave-particle dualism. And NBR recognized, again, that evolutionary processes cannot account for this. There's no, no explanation in evolutionary thinking that gives us uh, uh, this condition. And, and that the perception component is a particular concern for the monists, it meaning that it destroys their position. This is on their radio. I'm going, well, isn't that interesting? Because you see, now that's a joke, you see, you get it in a minute, if something must be perceived in order to exist, which means something must be seen in order to exist. So in order for these chairs to exist, somebody must be seeing them. If we all left, they still exist, true? I could have video cameras, but then we would be seeing the video, and that would mean our perception causes their existence. But if we weren't seeing them, they, in order to exist, somebody must be seeing them. So that means the implication then if something must be observed to exist, to be real, then that, there must be an absolute observer who sees everything, who knows all things. Think about what the Bible says about Christ over and over again. You know all things, knowing all things. He knew all things. He knows all things. Constantly it says that about Christ. He is the absolute observer. Nothing can exist unless he observe it, observes it. And again, there's no evolutionary mechanism to explain the existence of observational impact. And I found that this outlet, which is usually ridiculously hostile to such obvious truths, to concede them publicly, that's a noteworthy event. Okay, that was just for fun. It's up to you to figure out how the observer effect connects uh, to the collapse of the walls of Jericho. You can do that while I continue. Some of you have already talked to me about it. You're trying to consider how words and trumpets. And by the way, was it the trumpets? Was it the shout? Was it God's words? What, what did it do to the walls? Because so, I got particle walls there. Did those particle walls convert to wave walls? What's this have to do with resurrection? Okay? But for today, I just had to get that in because that's where we're going to head. I want to continue um, towards the accursed thing in the stoning of Achan. That's where we want to go today. So here we got in the remaining minutes, which isn't very many because I'm going really fast and I'm doing really good. And there is no buffet today. And the reason there is no buffet for those of you on the Internet is because you have not been sending pizza like we have asked you to do. You laughed. That was not the time to laugh. And now we're going to think that it's a joke. Have we had somebody from the Internet send us cookies? Yes. Have they sent us donuts? Yes. Have they sent us pizza? Yes. Have they done it enough? No. They've not done it enough. This was my chance. And you guys might have discouraged them. You should have cried. Bye. I had, this you think is very funny, for years, as you know, I used to write on the back of this, and I, I, when I was in teaching school, I'd hold up signs, applause. And every, it was just ma a miracle, really, almost magic. Every time I'd hold the sign up, the whole class would applaud. Just like trained monkeys. It's amazing. Even if I didn't say anything applause-worthy, and I started to say, how far can I go with this? So I... I held up signs and said, laugh. And they would laugh. They thought it was funny. So whenever I needed to laugh, I held up a sign. Whenever I wanted to applaud. 
And then I got a theme song because I figured I got it from the idea of the six million dollar man. He had his own theme song and he ran in slow motion. I thought that was really cool. And I wanted a theme song. Well, I've, I've said that story many, many times. And somebody sent me, as you might know, an applause track, uh, a laugh track, and a theme song. I got now on a CD at home. <laughs> and as soon as we can get the building back in, in operation, that'll be one of Terithathy's new jobs. Just to, just to make sure we augment the, con- the, <laughs> the, <laughs> the congregation size with a more significant noise. Okay. So, Joshua, what we're going to... We're going to read, read some stuff that we read last week in case some of you were occupied by dip nets and missed last Sunday. So here we go. 617 of Joshua. Now the city... Uh, I might have to make a list, so let me erase this. Now the city shall be dedicated. That word will mean devoted to or dedicated to. Now the city shall be dedicated by the Lord to destruction, and, it sh- and all who are in it, only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are in her house, because she hid the messengers. And you, talking to Israel, this is God speaking, by all means, abstain from the accursed thing. Don't touch the accursed thing. Or the dedicated thing. Or the devoted thing. I like to say accursed, as I said last week, because it's just kind of cool. But know that it means devoted. By all means, abstain from the devoted thing, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed thing. And make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and golden vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. Now we go to verse seven or verse one of chapter seven. But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed thing for Achan. Now notice the children of Israel take the hit. It doesn't say, but Achan committed a trespass. It says the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed thing. Why is that? For Achan, the son of Carmi or Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things. So the anger of the Lord burned. Achan took it. Now here's God's voice in front of the whole nation of Israel saying, don't take the devoted thing. Achan goes, I'm taking it. What's he thinking? Very important. And it says, God's anger burned. Now, when God has anger, it is not the same as when we have anger. Do not anthropomorphize and put your personality or your sin into him. He doesn't have it. He now knows that something's got to be done. Now, now where am I? Okay, 7-4. So about 3,000 men. What happens is, is after Achan took it, and, and God now is going to intervene, we have 3,000 men are sent up to battle at Ai, which was about, maybe had 15,000 people in it, uh, or 15,000 soldiers. So instead of like they did at Jericho, the entire nation was at Jericho. Only 3,000 are sent. So about 3,000 men went up from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. In other words, they were routed. But the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shabaram, and struck them down on the descent. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. I got great fear now. So now, uh, Joshua 7, 10, 11. So the, I'm skipping stuff. We'll get to it next week. So the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Joshua now is in total panic. He's face down. He's in great despair. And the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why do you lie on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant. What's the obvious question there? Which covenant? I have all kinds of covenants, right? How many do I have? How many choices I got? 
I got eight. Which one is it? What have we been discussing, by the way, with regard to Israel? What happens to Moses when he's confronted? What's all that about? That's right. Everyone's favorite subject? Circumcision. The sign of what covenant is circumcision? Anyway, I'm moving on. They have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them, for they have even taken some of the accursed things, and they have stolen and lied. And it says they. Wait a minute. I thought it was just Achan. They. Who is they, and what's the obvious question here? How many they is they? They. What did they do? Oops. What did they do? They stole. There's an obvious question right there. And they lied. Joshua 7:15. Then it shall be that who that he who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire. So who, whoever is the, the accursed thing goes to, that guy's going to be burned. So obviously this is a big deal, isn't it? So what is really going on here? What is the accursed thing? Why is the penalty so severe? Why not whoever takes it has to give it back and uh, we take a couple of his mules? No, we're going to burn him with fire. Why is that? And finally, Joshua 7.19. This is where Joshua has investigated and discovered that Achan has... Uh, Taken it. Now Joshua says to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel. I beg you, my son. Make confessions to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Now, this is Joshua, right? Yeshua. This is Joshua type of Christ saying this. Make a confession to me and do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I have done when I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment. When I saw that, I said, i got to have it. So I have this garment. And it's a Babylonian garment. It's not an Egyptian garment. How far is Babylon from Jericho, by the way? Just asking. How about Syria, Lebanon? Jordan, Egypt. This is a Babylonian garment. And he knew it was a Babylonian garment as soon as he saw it. Oh my goodness. I did not expect to see that. I heard about the accursed things. Didn't know it was a Babylonian garment. I've got to have me some of that. Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them, and there they are hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was hidden in his tent with the silver under it. And they took them out from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua and to all the children of Israel, and laid them out before the Lord. The way it's worded, it's like God is standing there, isn't it? We went and got it, and we put it out in front of you. I can't even begin to give a proper explanation of what has happened to Joshua chapter 7. I mean, just the, just the meaning of the word silver. We're back, we're going into the atonement money. We're into the tabernacle of Moses. 
silver just in itself and gold is just an amazing amount of work to be done. And this is quite an, quite the account. I've spent months on Joshua 7 in the past, as some of you might remember. And I never came close to dealing with all the pieces. I, I finally, I, I did a very cursory, shallow version of it. Uh, and uh, I'll probably do the same thing to do. The uh, same thing again, because there's just so much to do. This is called the failure of Joshua for a lot of reasons. And it comports with the failure of Moses at, uh, when he had not circumcised his children, and therefore the failure of Jacob somewhere. Uh, and we're going to have to work our way through that. But being that I am suggesting that these three men share an experience with the angel of the Lord, Jesus God. And I can't emphasize enough that this passage is filled with information. It, there's so much information. Every single sentence is just a, a, a war to get through. So very, you gotta go very slow, read every word, ask every obvious question, and we're not gonna do it. It's not possible. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough life left. So we're just gonna go through it as, as much as I can, and, and I would recommend that you, you deal with Joshua 7. It's fantastic. You can't pick a better subject. So, what is the devoted or the accursed thing? What is it? Is it accursed only because it's stolen? Is that what makes it? Because it's devoted. Some people think it's cursed, and if you touch it, it's like Medusa's head or something, and you end up stoned. Never mind. Not in Colorado. But is it accursed only if it's stolen? If it, and it is stolen, so what's the word there? What do we got to do? It's stolen. They, it's a stolen piece of property. And so, what's the obvious question? Who is the owner of it? And did the person who had it in Jericho, and by the way, who had it in Jericho? And why wasn't the person that had it in Jericho wearing it? How did Achan find it? Achan clearly can't be a what? He's not an enlisted corporal non-com. He's what? He's in charge of a cursed thing recovery detail, isn't he? He's sent in there to get it. He is a very, I believe, a very high-ranking man. That becomes important, I think. So whose property is it? Does the passage identify the one that it was stolen from? The answer is what? It did. Find that verse. Obviously, just to help you out, the king of Jericho had this stuff. Where did he get it? Did he steal it? Who stole it first? Is this the place in the Bible where the devoted thing is finally returned to its rightful owner? Yes. It is. So now we're on the trail of the devoted thing. Here's my favorite question. Did Esau steal it? I just threw that in there for fun. Besides it being relevant, it is relevant. But okay, for today, Achan stole it. Achan of the tribe of Judah stole the devoted thing. And God comes and says, i got to get it back. I can't let you steal it. If you steal it, that's a big problem. I have to intervene. Anger, intervene. And whoever steals it has got to be burned. Got to burn them. It's that serious. So you have to start going, this is really serious. Whatever this thing is, when you steal it, this is a capital crime. What does that usually mean? It usually means that you're going to cause the death of a lot of people if he doesn't stop you. Because Achan stole this thing, he's going to kill a lot of people, and God has to stop him. What is this thing? God comes. God has to stop it. Ask why. 
Why does Joshua only send 3,000 men against Ai? Usually he's going to send the whole nation, but Ai again only has maybe 15,000 people, and Joshua sends only 3,000, and 36 Israelis are killed, and the hearts of the Israelites melt like water. As soon as 36, that's not even 1% casualties, 1% casualties, and the, and the hearts of the Israelis go in the toilet. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Let me read it. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the, of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? Why would you do it? You to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Oh, we should have just stayed on the other side of Jordan, never even left Egypt. My goodness, you're just going to kill us all. A little chronister paraphrase there. That's Joshua saying that. What? Why is he in absolute panic? Why did the hearts of the people completely melt and go into despair and they're ready to turn tail? They lost 36 guys. And by the way, he only sent 3,000 because he thought it was a cakewalk. You know, we just wiped out Jericho. We had no fatalities. This goes on. They get in fights with huge armies. All Every single soldier comes back safe. The other soldiers, all dead. Nobody's supposed to be killed. And Joshua knows that nobody's supposed to be killed. And the people melted because who showed up and chased them? That's right. Who scared them the first time? The Nephilim scared them. And they scared them again. And they're ready to run again. It's not good in Joshua 7, 6 through 7. Not good. Joshua's accusing God of what? Of bringing them into the promised land to kill them. What's that? God is what? He's evil. He's lying. He intends to destroy Israel because he just feels like it. And that is Joshua doing that. And God responds. Here's what he responds. He says, no, they have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and hid it among their own stuff. Again, how many days are there? How big of a group of men went into that city with Achan? How many did he have with him? A couple thousand? How many people are, are under his command? And he saw that thing and he went, wow, look at that. That's a Babylonian garment. I know who owned it. I know what it is, and I'm taking it. How was he able to steal it? How many are involved? Why did they do this? Who are the they? Why would anyone, after watching and hearing and seeing everything that led up to the utter destruction of Jericho, why would anyone think they could hide the devoted thing, this incredible Babylonian robe? By the way, it's the robe of the king, Jonah 3.6. King of Jericho's robe. How interesting that the king of Nineveh, by the way, had the same robe. Now, maybe his robe was a different robe. Maybe they're copies of each other. Maybe it's the exact same robe. What do you think? The king of Jericho's robe. All right, I got to move on here. Run out of time. Joshua begs Achan to tell the truth before God who is present, has made himself obvious. He says, don't lie, confess. My son, I beg you, make a thorough confession before God. God's here. There he is. We either see him or hear him. He's here. Don't mess around. You didn't fool anybody. What is Joshua doing? Well, he's giving Achan a final chance to do what? Save his soul, if you want to put it in that terminology. And Achan did it, didn't he? He still gets burned. He obediently went to his death. I'm going to make a case for Achan, and I'm going to contrast it to Acts 5. When you have God present and you lie, what are you saying? 
Didn't go so well for Ananias and Sapphira, did it? By the way, as an aside, will millions and millions, if not billions of people, when they see God face to face, try to lie to him? Oh, yeah. They're going to do. Well, no, you're wrong about that. I didn't really do that. Do it that way. You got that wrong. You're going to try it. You know they are. Consider the implications of doing so. I, I used to tell my students in high school, go ahead, keep lying. I find it amusing. I had a sign that said that, keep lying. I find it amusing. I put it around my neck when they start talking to me about their assignments. It stops being amusing if you think you're fooling me, I would tell them. And it stops being amusing if you start to believe yourself. That's when you're in trouble. That's when you've crossed over to psychopathy. And now what can you do for a job? That's right. You can become elected to high office now. You're gonna, if you could, if, if you know your line and you know that God knows your line, and if you don't know that, then you'll be a politician. Anyway, Aiken confesses completely. I'm gonna make the case that Aiken was a high-ranking soldier next week who had been given authority to secure the devoted accursed thing because he could be trusted not to do this. And he did it. I'm not gonna get, listen, he just told everybody, don't touch it. So Joshua looks around and says, who can I depend on to go in and get this thing and bring it back here so we don't have any problems? Aiken, you and your men, you're the, Aiken stole it. Knowing the penalty, because God himself spoke the penalty. Why didn't he believe the penalty? Why didn't he think this was gonna happen to him? Why didn't he believe, if I'm not obedient to God, I will suffer eternal condemnation? Well, because hardly anyone believes that. But what is so compelling about this garment? Why is the penalty so severe? What was Achan going to do with this garment? What was his ultimate plan? What was his ultimate plan? Really fast, you can tell me. What was his plan? He's got a robe. What's he going to do with it? He's going to wear it. Why is he going to wear it? What's that going to do to the people around him? What are they going to do? And the messengers find the robe and they lay it out before its owner. Here's your robe back. And then all of that stuff is collected. Joshua 7, 24 and 25. Achan is stoned. And then his body is burned, and there's a great heap, heap of stones. Why are they doing that? Why stone before burn? Why not just do it all in one burning? And what about the garment and the animals and the co-conspirators and the family? Did they get burned? Well, we've got to figure that out next week. Remember, Achan confessed. Son, I beg you, confess. A lot going on this. Surrender. It can surrender. We'll get through that next week. Deuteronomy 24:16. For those of you who want to get ahead, you got to wrestle with that a little bit to figure it all out. And I almost said magicians. It's kind of the same thing. Musicians will come forward. Why do the musicians come forward? Let's rise and be dismissed.